Hello everyone, it's May 29th, 2018, so low-density supersonic decelerators. Balloons, balutes, parachutes, I'm already confused. Luckily, we have Eric Blood on the show this week to help simplify it all. We're going to keep it light and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 160 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. My name is David. And my name is Ben. How are you doing, David? All right. How are you doing? Doing okay. The, I mean, it was a busy week. I don't have anything. I think we could, I mean, we could, we could banter about very rich people on Twitter acting like insane people, but. Okay. Well, I don't follow Twitter nearly closely enough to know what you're referring to, but. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, I got something better to talk about. I'm working on a, on a little electronics project. So I just bought 10 Adafruit trinkets. Um, which are a little Arduino mini microcontroller. And I really mean mini. I mean, like, if I put my two thumbnails together, that's about how big this thing is. Super, super tiny. And so I got 10 of them, and I kind of want to, like, put them in a bowl like popcorn. I don't know. They're so small. So is Adafruit, did that start off as a YouTube channel, or was that a secondary thing? Like, what exactly is it? Yeah, YouTube channel came after. So... Adafruit is an electronics company in New York. They build, they primarily, they find high quality electronics and sell them. Like they, you know, they buy them from other people and then resell them. They also um, do some fabrication um, of like integrated circuits. So um, a lot of their microcontrollers they buy most everything already built and then they do a little bit of like pick and place to finish them off and then they do testing in-house so that they can provide a really high quality product and so as a result their profit margins are pretty low which means that their prices are pretty high but they're so invested in their in their community and education and just being really really high quality um, that a lot of people um, are willing to pay the higher prices, including me. I'm willing to pay the higher prices because they are just so insanely cool. Um, and it's also really nice to be able to go on their website and look at things and see, oh, I could use that and I can use that and just know that it's going to work and that I have support if I need help. Um, but then, yeah, the part of the education is their YouTube channel, which they do a lot of really amazing things on. Okay. So one other cool bit of news, just a follow-up from, I guess, two weeks ago we talked about this. Um, The Expanse is back, so that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> season. Yeah, I saw that, and I was, like, happy for you. That actually made my day. I was really mm-hmm. thrilled about that because I was complaining and bitching and moaning about how, you know, season three was probably going to be the last season. So that's really cool news, so I'm happy about that. So for anyone out there who's an Expanse fan, yeah, this is something that we can be very happy about. If you're not, I don't know why. You should watch it. So should we move on to this week in spaceflight history? Who do we have that did not get the right answer? Because I think everyone did. Now, uh, a couple of people um, guessed incorrectly, and they were just like way off the mark. Um, a couple of these people should technically be partial credit winners because they were close enough. But I was going to like keep track of who got everything exactly right. And then it was just mm-hmm. like this flood of people. And I was like, ah, forget it. I'll just give them all. All credit. All right. So our first winner is Eric Blood, who we're going to hear more from uh, in the rest of the show. And he decided to guess while we were getting ready to do the interview. Uh, then Lucas Seam, Amy Parent, Alistair Cranston, Taylor Marks, Burt Kaleo, Dunwich Technologies, 
I'm assuming that somebody forgot to switch their personal account there. Uh, Mike Carper, Dan in the chat, <laughs> Ben Hallert, and Noah Purdy. Um, just a quick reminder, you are welcome to submit guesses in any medium that you like as long as it gets to me. Um, but you are only guaranteed to be on the show if you are on if you do it on Twitter um, as a tweet, because that way it goes my bot goes and grabs it and I can uh I can do a one-click referral. If you put it somewhere else, I'll try to remember to get into the show notes, but you're not guaranteed. But I think I got everybody this time. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 4th of June, 2010. It was the first launch of Falcon 9. So boy, after such a crazy history with Falcon 1, they really took their time making sure that Falcon 9 was was going to go well. And they actually delayed the launch more than 10 times for a bunch of different reasons, but not least amongst them being they were able to do a full duration uh, stand test fire of the upper stage. The test fire for that actually happened after their first planned launch date. So um, they did that. They retested a bunch of stuff. They uh, had to wait for weather. They had to wait for range clearance, all these crazy things. So when they finally got down to the 4th of June, they got down to their first T0. They were only a couple seconds off and the computer called an abort. And it turns out that it was due to a faulty engine sensor. It was something that they had seen before, um, but uh, didn't expect to be an issue. Turned out to be an issue. Here's the really cool thing. They recycled and successfully launched an hour and 15 minutes later. That sounds pretty normal. What's really insane is that that recycle time included sending all of their data to Hawthorne. Hawthorne took the data, go, yeah, okay, that's this is the problem. We've seen this before. They write software to fix it and then test the software on their avionics uh, test station in Hawthorne and then send the updated software back, which the, the they then upload to the rocket. So like an hour and 15 minutes is kind of insane to get all that done. Yeah, that's a really good turnaround time for a <laughs> fixing a bug. That's a short yeah, launch reset. Right. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Um, on board, I didn't mention this, but on board was the Dragon Spacecraft Qualification Unit, DSQU. I don't know if anybody uses the acronym. So I almost used DSQU as the clue last week, but I thought that would be way too obvious. Um, so if this had been an actual Dragon mission, they would have lost... The international space the window for the international space station um so that kind of recycle time isn't super important for dragon missions but i mean it, it shows kind of the ability to do things differently than the rest of the industry um another kind of crazy thing that i, I think everybody should be familiar with is after the clamps disengage and and back then they actually retracted from the rocket which is pretty cool as soon as those clamps released the entire the entire rocket rotated I don't know, 45, maybe, maybe 90 degrees. It's, it's a little hard to tell, but the entire thing rolled and it stopped its roll before it cleared the launch tower or the, the strong back, but it, it rolled a, a pretty drastic amount pretty quickly. It turns out that this was due to quote unquote swirl from the engine exhaust, as well as off center turbo pump exhaust. And then that that's totally correctable, but at launch, they have limits on gimbling. I think during the first, you know, second of the launch, uh, while you're in close proximity to the launch pad. Um, so in any event, the gimbling was too slow to be able to correct the rotation until the rocket got a bit higher. And then it was able to, to correct that, that roll and lift it off pretty straight. Do you remember seeing that footage, David? No, I don't think I do actually. And in fact, I was going to say, um, 
well, I don't want to spoil it, but I don't remember the main event that we're talking about here, or I guess one of them, um, having to do with a parachute. So um, <laughs> this is all kind of news to me. Like, I, I think I'd somehow completely forgotten about this. I sort of remember the first launch, but these details, no. Uh, well, so I was I was going to point you out a YouTube video, but I realized that it's blocked in the United States. Um, it'll be in the show notes if you have a way to view this video, um, like if you are outside of the United States. So the first stage rolled as it lifted off, uh, but so did the second stage. During, I think close to the end of the second stage's flight, it, it picked up a roll. It's pretty clear that it was an unrelated issue, but I haven't been able to find a good reason for, for why it actually happened. But SpaceX said that it was uh, a roll that didn't um, endanger the mission, but if it got any faster, it certainly could have been a, a big issue. And both of these were corrected down the line for for other flights so um yeah i'm not exactly sure what, what happened but yeah so the clue for this week was uh they did it with parachutes first david you you kind of uh started talking about this is they tried to land the first stage with parachutes in fact falcon one also had parachutes on the first stage and as you might expect parachutes aren't a great solution for uh for returning first stages. One of the major reasons is if you're under parachutes, uh, you're going to drift a lot. And so if you want to land precisely, you know, specifically of you, if you have a big thing, a big heavy thing that you don't want to land in the water, you need precise landing on land or precise landing on a boat. And for both of those, uh, parachutes aren't a great solution. But a lot of people talk about the parachute as actually uh, having failed, but that's that's not true. The parachute never deployed. The uh, The entire first stage actually broke up on re-entry. And this happened again and again and again until they started using supersonic retropropulsion, um, which they now call the entry burn. Um, without that, parachutes don't matter at all. Sam in the chat saying that Soyuz boosters and Chinese boosters um, do actually impact the ground. So if you have a, a stronger construction, that, that may actually be a technique that you can begin to think about. So thank you for pointing that out. But yeah, not not good for Falcon 9 and not good for other rockets. I'm going to be really shocked if this ever becomes a viable option. I do remember the roll control problems, and I remember Elon Musk saying that those dynamic forces were much higher than they had thought. And so, yeah, this whole parachute idea just doesn't work because uh, that first stage was, I think the word he used was, it was essentially like belly flopping on the atmosphere, you know, and just yeah. getting tore up. Um, so they kind of had to feel that out and see what they were dealing with. And so I guess they thought somewhat naively that they could use parachutes, but in fact, you couldn't even save the first stage, let alone have it come down on a parachute. But that was something that they would figure out. Yeah. They flew the next, I think, two flights, maybe three. I think it's just the next two flew with parachutes as well. Uh, but they ended up taking them off to, to save weight. And then we have a fantastic photo that Ben Hallert uh, sent us. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's from Vanity Fair. Um, and it's Elon Musk standing inside a Falcon 9 interstage. Um, so there are some beautiful high resolution views of the inside of a very early interstage. So you can see pressure bottles and uh, a lot of uh, cabling. But then on the bottom, there are big black kind of semicircular uh, prism shaped bulges that that are uh, parachutes and they're they're off center which is interesting so i'm assuming that they've got harnesses like the harness attaches to symmetrical points around the perimeter uh, but anyway it's it's a really uh great photo from vanity fair i mean just uh, a great 
depiction of kind of SpaceX's attitude. You know, very few people will stand in a suit inside of a fairing on the production floor. Cool photo. Awesome. Well, what is our clue for next week? All right. Good luck with this one, guys. Uh, we'll, we'll see how many people get this. But next week in 1928, the clue is before you could take a trampoline to the ISS, there was blank. So next week in 1928, before you could take a trampoline to the ISS, there was dot, dot, dot. All right. Well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. An update on Arian 6. This is a cool little bit of news that you had gotten, Ben, from a website that I'm not familiar with, which is satelliteobservation.net, but they had some really interesting information about what is what is going on with the CNES, or CNES, as it's pronounced in French, which is just a weird pronunciation, but okay. So what are we going to talk about regarding CNES? Yeah, so they, they do monthly like press cafe. They call them cafes. So it's like a... a, a... Very French, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like a press conference that they do. Um, with a lot of questions and answers. I think it's it's kind of a cool format, just kind of like throwing things kind of open. But but this month they talked a lot about Ariane 6, which is pretty cool um, because we, we haven't heard a whole super heck a lot about Ariane 6 so far. So the two people who were presenting was uh, Jerome Villa, who is the Assistant Director for Research and Future Programs at the CNES Launcher Directorate, and uh, Alain Dupas, who is an advisor to CNES. I don't know exactly what he does. So one of the things that they talked about was reusability. So six years ago, ESA in general, but CNES in particular, basically said uh, reusability isn't technically feasible, and it's certainly not financially feasible. And that attitude has totally changed. I mean, because of SpaceX, right? It's right. You can't yeah. say that it's anything else. Uh, so, so SpaceX has proved that it's technically feasible, um, which was the the low bar. The high bar is still financial feasibility. And Kness now says that hey, this might actually be a thing that that works uh, financially. And the one thing that they're citing as as the change that's made that happen is the idea of mega constellations. So basically, you know, satellite internet, these huge, huge constellations. Well, if you're doing that, you're going to have a much increased demand for uh, for launches. The the things that we're seeing on the horizon are enough to make these folks begin to think that hey, reusability might actually be a a good idea now. But I wonder how much of that is them trying to justify that after the fact by saying that, or the fact that it's not financially feasible, that was their justification, I think, for not pursuing a reusable launch vehicle. But I keep thinking again and again and again that like, if you build it, they will come. So uh, who's to say that if you created a much cheaper ride to space that you wouldn't have more clients that you wouldn't have more customers and so i mean i just don't know if that's a good enough justification to yeah. say that it's not I don't, know, I don't know that's just something that keeps well, on coming back to me every time i hear the argument yeah i mean it's certainly a, a sticky drawer situation right when you when you have drawers that are too close they, they don't have enough margin for error they don't have enough clearance you know you have to like walk them back and forth right if you can't mm. push them perfectly straight in you kind of wobble back and forth and it takes us give and take from both sides so you know reusable launch vehicles are definitely a chicken and egg problem where you have you know a not enough demand and b not enough supply and so you have to walk them both forward 
um, with everybody taking risks to to get this drawer closed. And in Europe, that that might not ever happen. They, Europe might not ever have um, enough demand to make reusability a, a real priority. And so, like you said, I don't, I don't know if just going ahead and doing it is the solution. Um, it, it might be, it might not be. And I think that there are a lot of very intelligent minds looking at the problem who can't make up their, their decision either. So it's, well, it certainly seems to be working for SpaceX. So, well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see if they really make back their money though, because they dumped a ton of money yeah. into reusability that they have not made back yet. So I, I think you're right. I think it's definitely, I think it's clearly the way of the future. It's just how we're going to get there is a question. One of the ways that we're not going to get there is uh, smart style reuse. Well, okay. Smart reuse may work, right? That's ULA's return just the engines technique. That may well be a, a nice middle ground, but it's not going to be a middle ground that ESA takes advantage of. So uh, Adeline was their kind of smart reuse style uh, half reusability technique. And basically it was you detach the engines and then they deploy wings and propellers and they fly themselves back home. And in this interview, um, Kness says that they looked at Adeline and they've come to the conclusion that is not financially interesting. And so I think Adeline has at least been put on the back burner. And th this might be the death of Adeline, which I think is really unfortunate because it would be really cool. Whether or not it would be a, a really good business decision doesn't matter. It would look cool. So it, if East is not interested or if Kness is not interested in Adeline style, you know, smart reuse style reuse, what are they interested in? Well, they're building a new project called Callisto, which is basically uh, SpaceX's grasshopper, but bigger boy version. So it is a it's not an SSTO, right? It's not single stage to orbit. It is single stage to 50 kilometers. And uh, it's, so it's going to go up to 50 kilometers. It's going to get up to, I think, like Mach 2 or Mach 3 and then re-enter, you know, quote unquote re-enter and then uh, return to its launch site. Um, so that's going to be kind of their test bed platform. Uh, they, they might end up doing some science on it, but I, I tend to think not. Uh, I think this is just them trying to work through some of the computer, you know, some of the software issues um, that go into controlling uh, rockets on the way back down, which is obviously very difficult. But it's very cool. I mean, again, it looks a lot like a Falcon 9 that kind of has that same yeah. landing lake design, but it's good to see that they're making that kind of an attempt, even if it is just for 50 kilometers. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. It sounds preliminary. Uh, Sam Moore in the chat uh, says that it's worth noting that the Japanese aren't working on reuse, uh, despite generally liking these technical solutions because their demand is so low. On average, they fly three to four times a year. Um, and that's also, that's the same issue that that Europe is is going to have to contend with. And as a response to that, Kness indicated that Ariane 6 is still a low volume production type of rocket. So Ariane 5 was described as, uh, what was it, handcrafted, I think, um, where it's it's very much assembled in, in uh, part-specific ways, whereas Ariane 6 is intended to be a more industrial uh, vehicle that can be... Um, you know, fabricated on mass, and and you can kind of 
go into production. But interestingly enough, Kness doesn't think that Ariane 6 could get up to 50 launches a year if they tried or, or uh, with without really trying hard. If they tried really hard and did some major updates, they uh, they're expecting that they could probably hit 50 launches a year. But uh, they are expecting SpaceX to hit 100 launches a year in the next couple of years, which um, is pretty reasonable. So, yeah, it's interesting to see different markets requiring different launchers. And it's it's a pity that it takes so much work to get a European spacecraft on an American uh, launch vehicle. If we could all focus on different areas, that, that would be kind of cool to kind of saturate the market out and meet all demands. But in any event, that's that's Ariane 6. And then there there are two more bullet points I have here. One is about a new upper stage engine. Uh, it's currently undisclosed. They won't name it or tell us how good it's going to be, but they likened it to Frigate. They said that it's going to have it's going to lend Ariane 6 uh, Frigate like performance um, or uh, Frigate like maneuverability, which I think they, they mean performance. And it, it is potentially something that's going to replace the Vinci engine, which is is interesting. You know, Vinci is kind of the the new kid on the block and it looks like it looks like it might be uh, overtaken this this new engine has got a lot of like 3d printed parts it sounds like and they're they're trying to um have more options to fly so initially they're going to sell them basically side by side you can choose which engine you want on your upper stage but they said that potentially if there's they're going to try to do that to keep as many people employed as possible, right? So they don't need to get rid of uh, everybody who's working on Vinci. Um, but if there's a, a lot of demand, they said that they potentially could only fly uh, this new upper stage engine and they could also potentially replace the strap-on solid rocket boosters and go to liquid boosters with this new undisclosed engine. So that's really interesting. Then my last bullet point here is that they made a very interesting point. They said that performance is not the most important thing. Here's a quote. Keep in mind that performances are not the good metric. Rather, it is cost and the market suitability, which is really interesting because, yeah, you, you don't need a super high performance engine. Like, everybody loves... SSME, the RS-25, Space Shuttle's super, super high performance engine that, uh, you know, is basically the best performance engine in the world, but it was also super expensive. That contributed, and you know, in some part to Shuttle's high costs. Uh, it kept Shuttle from being the pickup truck that we all wanted it to be. And so it's really interesting because we're all kind of obsessed with higher ISP and higher sea uh, level thrust. But when it comes down to it, if you can fly a lower performance rocket for less money what does it matter um, and that's that's something that spacex has kind of done right the merlin engine uh, is not the most powerful or the most efficient engine and it's it very much has gotten better but when it started it very much was you know kind of at the low end of the pile but that didn't really matter because they got the prices they needed and they were able to deliver payloads to where they need to go and you know, now they're working on on reliability and that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, SpaceX matches what the market wants right now. So I, I think this is a really good thing to keep in mind. It's something that I tend to forget. That's a very good point. I would say the one thing that is, you know, even more important, of course, is reusability, because no matter how low in cost they are, they're going to cost more than an engine that you could use, you know, 10, mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 times more. And that is something that they're looking at with this engine. So there's not much information on the Prometheus. Wait, hang on. Let, let's delineate real quick here. So the Prometheus is not this new upper stage engine that I was just talking about. It is a, a new Methalox engine 
I just want to be really clear that they're not the same thing because I don't want emails. Okay, go ahead, David. Okay. okay. Sorry for interrupting. So the Prometheus, it is a contender for a reusable engine, or it is designed to be a low-cost as well as potentially reusable engine. Um, It's just that they don't have anything to reuse it on. So that's sort of a big issue there. And I find it interesting that they're not trying to develop the engine along with some kind of a vehicle they can bring back a first stage at least, because that to me seems, I don't know, it just seems like the more long-term economical way of doing it. Because, yeah, so this is supposed to be 10 times cheaper than manufacturing current engines. But if SpaceX can manufacture a Merlin for twice the cost, but reuse it 10 times, then they still lose, right? In terms of how much you economically get out of an engine. um, I get the impression that they're certainly making progress or they're trying to make progress and they're making, they're coming up with these new ideas, which are very interesting, but it's sort of like half measures, you know, like they're not really going all the way. And I kind of wish that they would. Um, I would really like to see that because again, so far, it just seems to be SpaceX and Blue Origin, two American companies. And that's pretty much it. Well, so the the rocket this is that this is going to fly on is Ariane next, which is I think it's one of those things that they don't exactly know what it's going to look like, so they don't want to promise something that they can't deliver. I've got a link here to uh the Dutch Space Twitter and they it's the Prometheus announcement. And so you can see, you know, some renders of of what Ariane next might look like and uh, this is also supposed to fly in callisto i believe so i mean yeah it's it's pretty but yeah we, we don't really know much about it before we move on I, I will point out that you know prometheus is supposed to be 10 times cheaper than rockets that are currently being produced uh in europe so well, the engines right not the rocket itself but... oh yeah, right 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 sorry um yeah and, and so you know when we're talking about performance not being the most important thing um, and price being the most important thing. This is kind of the the walk behind the talk, right? And anyway, so hopefully we're going to see Prometheus have a stand test in 2020. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. But yeah, should should be interesting. All right, let's do some short and sweet. And what is our first one, Ben? All right, first, NASA wants to buy rides on commercial lunar landers by the end of the year. Very fast. James Reuter, the NASA Deputy Associate Administrator for the Space Technology Mission Directorate, boy, is quoted by Space News as saying, we have a strong push to get a lander to the moon as quickly as possible. NASA nominally wants to continue to return to the moon once a year after that as well. These flights are for a small to medium lander in the 500 to 1000 kilogram range and the hope is that these flights will encourage the lander industry to mature and to begin preparing human class landers in the future next up block 5 doesn't count for crew rating yet Uh, so the new copb helium tank that elon musk claims to be extremely reliable as they have quote tested the daylights out of it Mm -hmm. that will not fly until later this year Uh, this means that any block 5 launches before then will not count towards a crew rating for the vehicle Elon Musk said during a press conference that the Block 5 that launched with the Banga Bandu 1 was the same version that will carry crew, but he could be wrong. It turns out he was. Until the new COPV is integrated into the Block 5 Falcon 9, none of the upcoming launches will help to qualify it, though it does appear that this is the last component needed to do so. So they just need to get that COPV on board and then they can start. And they just need seven uh, launches, which I don't think I put that in there. So yeah, seven launches to qualify for a crew rating, I believe, and that would be the end of it. And that's all they need to do. Quote, unquote, all. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's still some more testing going on with those pressure vessels because I don't know why they're not currently on the Block 5. It sounded 
sounded like they already had been integrated. I didn't know that they hadn't been, just given the way that he was talking about it. I guess right now it's the same ones that they've had, but they're just, uh, they just have a new locks loading procedure that prevents previous issues they've had, or the one that they had with Amos 6. Yeah, I, I thought they had switched as well. Alright, this week we have with us Eric Blood to talk about low-density supersonic decelerators. So, uh, welcome to the show. You listened to the show, and I think you listened to a segment that we did on this, and we were very confused about it. Uh, I still am, so it's good to have you on. Thanks for responding and accepting the interview. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so my name is uh, Eric, and um, I spent, uh, I was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory from 2010 till 2015, and during that time, I worked on a program called Low Density Supersonic Decelerators. And I recall uh, listening to your show when I was driving home one day, and you guys were talking about a balut, a balloon parachute for, I believe it was uh, Falcon's second stage. And you mentioned um, there was some discussion in the show about, hey, is this, uh, I think LDSD flew a balut. And then it was kind of a little back and forth. I was like, hey, I can talk about that. And so I emailed in with a little information about the LDSD program. And I think that's where we started this conversation. Um, tell us about LDSD and, and what the goals of the program were and, and what actually happened when you flew it. So LDSD, Low Density Supersonic Decelerators, was a entry um, technology program that helped test different types of entry devices to help get uh, more mass and more stuff to Mars. So as you guys probably know, uh, the last Mars mission that landed was Mars Science Laboratory back in 2012 uh, with a very kind of crazy EDL system, which mm -hmm. is entry descent landing, um, which ended with uh, eight giant rockets um, that helped jetpack the rover down safely on the surface of Mars. And the parachute that was used during that program um, was called a, a disc gap band parachute, a 21.35 meter diameter parachute and that parachute is pretty much well was the largest parachute ever flown on another planet and that parachute was all designed um, and built uh, based on technology that was tested back in the 70s for a program called the balloon launched decelerator test bldt and it's pretty much it's the biggest that we can really take that parachute um, with that those that test campaign that we did back in the 70s so the program ldsd was designed to recreate that test program to test even larger parachutes at higher Mach numbers to deliver more mass or more capability at Mars. And while we were at it, we actually added a second technology um, called SIAD, the Supersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator, to help uh, basically make the heat shield look bigger and increase your ballistic force as you just enter uh, the atmosphere up higher at much higher Mach numbers. Can you go back to the balloon launch decelerator test? Do you, do you know much about that? Because I've never heard of this before. So I will talk as much as I feel comfortable. Um, yes. BLDT <laughs> right. was a series. It's actually interesting. BLDT was a series of, I believe, four launches back in the 70s um, of a very similar flying saucer looking shape that we launched uh, LDSD with. Huh. And in uh, had a couple of different differences um, used. I believe it was liquid propulsion on the outside of it. Um, so we used a giant motor in the center of ours. And there's a number of actual, it's funny, you can actually find some of the old footage in like UFO sighting videos, though you can actually oh, find the NASA, <laughs> the NASA footage that, that matches it. You're like, oh, here's the NASA footage. And then here's it on like some YouTube clips about, do you see this UFO? Um, and not like we garnered some similar interest when people saw our, our mm. uh, flying saucer shaped uh, test vehicle. But BLDT um, tested um, the supersonic inflation characteristics of a disc gap band up to, I believe, about a 16 meter parachute uh, they tested back in the 70s. And then we wanted to take that up to a 
uh, about a 30 and a half meter parachute for the LDSD program, um, which is tested on a number of different test campaigns. Do you know if they like ended up destroying their their parachute? How did you know that? I mean, if you can go larger than the largest that, that they did, like, how did you know that, that was going to work? And did they actually find the upper limit on the size of, of these parachutes? That's actually getting into, I'm not sure if I can answer that within my comfort level. To be honest, sure, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. What you can what you can say is that uh, there's a number of tests you can do um, to qualify the uh, inflation of it. Qualifying the load of a parachute is actually fairly easy. You can do that using a wind tunnel, uh, lower velocity, high dynamic pressure to get your final load uh, load characteristics to make sure your parachute can handle your steady state loads. The really challenging thing that most people don't understand, or at least even today, we don't necessarily have a great understanding of, is supersonic inflation and all the supersonic dynamics that occur during the actual inflation event of the parachute. Um, steady state is, quote unquote, relatively much easier. Um, it's the supersonic inflation that's really challenging. And is that just because of the unpredictability of how that thing will unfold, that there's just a lot of transients that you cannot account for during that particular transition from being, you know, a little jumbled up ball to being <laughs> a full parachute? <laughs> well, let me give you a, a kind of um, an idea. So the parachutes that we've been flying on Mars are called disc gap bands. And what you have is, if you want to think about it, at the very top, you have this giant disc. Um, so one giant piece of fabric, and then you have a gap in the fabric, which is the gap, and then you have another Band. So altogether, disc gap bands have two large pieces of fabric. The parachutes we were trying to test in LDSD um, were a design called a supersonic ring cell or a derivative of a supersonic ring cell, which had upwards of, I believe, were on the order of about a thousand different panels. Um, these panels were sewn on, on three of the four sides, and you actually had this opening on the fourth side, but you had a ton of these panels. And so instead of just having two pieces of fabric that had to inflate completely, we had dynamics of um, hundreds of panels that were inflating. And so you have all these dynamics that happen all within a quarter to a half second during the actual inflation event. Uh, we are testing upwards to, I believe, about Mach 1.7 for the parachute inflation. It's just a really challenging environment to quantify. Um, even with the best fluid structure interaction computational solvers plus computational fluid dynamic solvers, it's just a uh, nasty environment to do computationally that you can only really mm. get a good handle of by doing uh, real tests. Yeah, that's the biggest reason why LDSD exists. You really just can't predict it with confidence enough to fly it as a single parachute for a Mars mission. Like that's that's what it comes down to is the parachute is the largest drag device on a Mars uh, mission once you get supersonic and you can't mess it up. You yeah. have to have a high level of confidence that it's going to work properly. I know that um, I remember actually landing night for MSL back in 2012, a few hours after we landed, uh, we got an image back from MRO. So the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was actually orbiting Mars during the landing event, and I was taking pictures with the high-rise camera mm. of the vehicle during the supersonic phase, and we actually got a picture of the parachute inflated with the aeroshell underneath of it, uh, and we got that a few hours after we actually landed successfully, and that was one of the coolest pictures I've ever seen in my life, because it's, it's, it's a picture of the parachute working on Mars, though we all knew it worked because we landed safely. <laughs> right. Just to see it was like, it was, uh, it was incredible. And I think we've talked about that, that photo on the show before, because like, that was a really difficult photo to get, and they weren't sure that it was actually going to work, even with you know their best math. Mm -hmm. They weren't sure if they were going to be in the in the right position. So sorry, I kind of interrupted you uh, while you were talking about LDSD in general. So you guys fly a UFO under a balloon, and then what happens? Let me take LDSD back more to larger a larger scope. So the LDSD program 
um, actually consisted of a number of tests. And only the very last test was this big balloon UFO-shaped thing that we flew, even before that. So the two technologies that we tested, um, one was the SIAD, Supersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator, um, which looked like a giant donut that inflated outside of the heat shield of a Mars vehicle. Um, that was tested actually at what we called a rocket sled facility, where we actually put it on front of a, a sled with rockets, quite literally, and inflated that to get the qualification loading um, complete uh, before we flew it at uh, Mach 4. And the same thing we did with the parachute. The 30.5 meter parachute is actually too large to test in any of the wind tunnels that we have. Uh, the MSL parachute was pretty much the largest parachute that we could fly inside the wind tunnel at NASA Ames, which is called NFAC. And so instead, the team, um, I'll be honest, that wasn't my thing, but the team designed this test where we had a rocket sled attached to a giant cord that went up to a giant pulley. And so a <laughs> helicopter dropped a parachute. And then as it fell down inflated, uh, there's a thing we called the bullet got attached to the rocket sled and the rocket sled pulled the parachute down with about 80,000 pounds of force. Yeah, and that was how nice. we did a qualification testing for the parachute. Since we couldn't do it in a wind tunnel, we made the world a wind tunnel. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing really screamed towards the ground. Like, like you guys really put a huge load on that, on that parachute. Yeah. The 80,000 pounds was the qualification load that we're looking for on that, on that parachute. And it's above what you expect to see in flight conditions, but it's what you qualify the parachutes to. Yeah. Um, and if you recall on the first test, um, I'm not sure if you guys had seen any of the footage from this, there was actually a split in the parachute during the first test, if I recall correctly, oh. uh, though the leading edge of the parachute stayed intact. So actually it didn't affect the drag conditions too greatly, which is a very interesting result. Sounds like a really good accidental engineering. It's a, it was a really cool test, and it's, um, it's one of those tests where it just doesn't look right but then when you go through all the math and you go through all the engineering you're like yeah this is the right way to do it this is the only way to do it um, without building a larger wind tunnel facility and uh, that was just kind of really cool to watch all that happen um, and all that testing was happening happening kind of parallel to the development of what we call the supersonic flight dynamics test sfdt and that's the test in which we had the giant flying saucer shaped test vehicle a giant balloon uh, that we launched off the coast of hawaii uh, and the balloon lofted the test vehicle up to about 120,000 feet. And from there, we dropped it and ignited this giant solid rocket motor called a Star 48, which then uh, spun us up and accelerated us to about Mach 4 and around 180 to 200,000 feet. And that's when the actual test campaign for the two technologies began. And first, we deployed the supersonic inflatable aerodynamic accelerator, or SIAD, uh, at about Mach 4. And then as the vehicle slowed down and uh, got past Mach 2, we deployed the supersonic parachute. Right. And Does that, that make sense? That... It's kind of a, it's a big mixture of different technologies uh, throughout the test. Yeah, which is really cool. What were like, what was the thinking here? Was the plan to use all these technologies on Mars, or was it just like, hey, we have a bunch of different things that we need to try out. Let's put them on one vehicle and try them all out in, in one test? Well, in general, like I said, the Mars Science Laboratory was really uh, right now the extent of our EDL technologies. Um, there are things, still some things we can do, but it really was the limit. So uh, not only was is JPL looking at these technologies, but across NASA, there's a bunch of different programs looking at different uh, ways to add more mass, add more capability, add more what we call timeline to the EDL process. And these two technologies are kind of complementary because they um, they occur at different parts of uh, the flight regime. So you can do a SIAD 
at Mach 4 and use the side to slow down to Mach 2 and then use the parachute from Mach 2 down to uh, all the way to the surface for our test. And both of these technologies will help increase the mass capability or increase the ability to, um, like I said, add timeline, which gives mm. us a chance to like, oh, look at, for instance, look for different features on the surface of Mars and maybe navigate towards those features, which is called, mm. um, there's a version of that flying on 2020 called the Terrain Relative Navigation. Um, so timeline just gives you more options once you get to Mars. Um, or another thing would be to add altitude. One of the reasons why a lot of times we land in craters on Mars is we just need that extra altitude to get safely uh, down to the right energy level, to the right speeds to mm -hmm. land safely. So we actually land in craters to give us just a little bit more uh, time under our drag producing devices. I did not know that about landing on Mars. Huh. Landing on Mars okay. is actually, um, it's, it's really, really tricky. It's it's tricky because so I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really tricky because you have one percent of the density at the surface of Mars that you do at the surface of Earth. Yet you can't ignore it, and you still have all these uh, aerothermal issues during the hypersonic part of entry. So it's a really really tricky environment where you still have to account for the atmosphere, but the atmosphere doesn't really help you that much to slow down relative to say Earth. Earth is a big big fluffy atmosphere that's really easy to slow down in all the worst case scenarios in one planet. Yeah. Who I remember some talk about the altitude that we land things at. I th I think it had to do with Mars 1. I think they were coming up with some uh some bullshit about being able to land at high altitudes and everybody else is like, "No, you can't do that." Like especially not with big payloads. I don't remember I don't remember what it was. It's really easy to find a single solution, a single combination of the atmosphere at the right time of year with the right density conditions with the perfect entry angle. That will get you to high altitude. It's easy mm -hmm. to find a single case that will land a simulation at higher altitudes. But NASA and generally we don't fly off of single cases. We fly off um, statistical probabilities. And we say, okay, we have a 99% chance of landing safely in these environments. Um, there are, I mean, of every single thing we fly to Mars, there is a non-zero chance that the conditions we hit that are expected could result in a failure because it is just the 1% or the 0.5% of cases of the combination of a thousand different factors that just happened to yield a flight regime that we can't handle, that the vehicle could not handle. That is possible, highly unlikely, but possible. So we, we work in the statistical sense to make sure that all the different things that could happen in terms of the flight path angle when we enter the Mars atmosphere, in terms of the different atmosphere, the atmosphere variations, cliffs and rocks and the parachute performance, the entry shell performance, all those things have a statistical variance on them. And we model that with a, uh, during before landing, multi-million run Monte Carlos to make sure that we understood exactly what's happening and that we are happy with the results before we make that decision. It's not just a, we find a single solution that gets us to the ground. No, we look at all the possibilities before we uh, sign up for a landing site. I believe this whole conversation started um, with you guys talking about the balloon parachute, otherwise known as a balut, and questioning whether LDSD flew in or not. And it's really tricky because LDSD on the supersonic test, SFDT, we did fly, fly a balut. Um, though it wasn't one of our primary technologies that we tested. We used a balute to help pull the parachute out of the can. And if I back up a little bit, usually when you go to Mars, the parachute is mounted to the very center of the vehicle, such that when we have a big mortar that deploys it, and when that mortar deploys, the impulse is right through the center mass of the vehicle and doesn't create any unstable conditions. Unfortunately, with our vehicle, uh, we had 
giant solid rocket motor right in the center of the vehicle and we couldn't mount the parachute in that position. And if we had used a mortar, we would have kicked off too much rotational dynamics to be stable. And so what we used was this thing called the parachute deployment device, PDD, which was a trailing balut. And we fired that first with a much less powerful mortar um, and that trailed behind the vehicle. And then the force, the aerodynamic force from that extracted the parachute from the can um, and especially extract the parachute, what's called backstrip conditions at the very end of its uh, length of uh, cord at the same type of conditions that the mortar would have created. So it was basically, since we can't use a mortar, we designed a technology to create the same conditions that a mortar would create at backstrip. And that's where the balut came from. So it wasn't a primary technology per se, but it was a part of the test infrastructure. Another question along those lines is um, just to give people a visual idea of how it works. Since you have this giant solid rocket motor directly in the center of the thing, the parachute is actually wrapped around it, right? It's sort of like wrapped around one side and that's how it deploys because you can't put it directly in the center because you have the engine there. So the parachute is, it's in a can off the side and the parachute is actually compressed to be about the same density as wood when it's in the can. It's actually compressed very, 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 very tightly. And then what is wrapped around the outside of the vehicle is what we call a triple bridle. And the triple bridle is what is the interface between the parachute and the vehicle. And so the triple bridle will stand up and that will go beyond, um, it's called the confluence point. The confluence point of the triple bridle is well behind the Star 48 solid rocket motor. Um, and that's what is in the center line of the vehicle. And then the parachute goes behind that. But the parachute itself is in a single location in a big can just stuffed really, really, really tightly on one side of the vehicle. And by big can, what do you mean? Are, are we talking like a, a couple of cubic centimeters, a cup, like a cubic foot? If I rec I had to look at the look at my old notes, but if I remember the can was, a, I would say about 15 inches across and maybe two feet tall. I'd have to oh, look wow. at my old, my old, uh, uh, knows to find the exact numbers, um, but it's it's not it's not small. Yeah, that's. And you have not to remember small. this this parachute when when fully when fully inflated is about 100 feet in diameter. These are not small parachutes. And then on top of that, you have a bunch of suspension lines and other cords that are part of the system that all get stuffed in the can with the parachute. So it's not just the fabric of the parachute; it's all the cords and suspension lines that help that are trailing sure. the vehicle before you get to the parachute yeah. all that gets stuffed in the can so you said that this balut was used to simulate a mortar firing so how do mortars normally work like because i'm thinking like in my head the mortar just acts on the parachute while it's in the can and then after that it's all up to the parachute but you're talking about this event that happens just before the parachute actually you know, unfurls. So how do, how do mortars normally work? Like I, I know sometimes they use like pilot shoots and things like that. I'm guessing there would have to be a drogue shoot, right? Because just because you blow the lid off the thing, you have to have some kind of propulsion or like something to push it back away from the vehicle. Well, so the, that's what the mortar, so the mortar is basically just a, is a, um, think of it as a very explosive piston actuation, right? It pushes the parachute out of the can very, very forcefully, very, very quickly. And then as your as the payload is coming out, as the parachute's coming out, the vehicle's still moving at Mach 1.7, Mach 2, and the parachute is creating more and more drag. And just once the very, very front of the parachute captures any level of the oncoming flow, the, the fluid flow, whether it's the Mars atmosphere, it starts opening itself up and the bag starts coming off the back of that. Okay, so it's it's like 
inflating itself and shucking off this piece of fabric that was containing it. Okay. Yeah, you don't typically need something to pull off the bag. It, it typically, the energy from the mortar plus the oncoming aerodynamic forces will help yeah. uh, unfurl the parachute. So so did your did your balut have to separate from the parachute or? Yep. So the what the balut did was, um, the balut was, we deployed the balut first and it trailed behind the vehicle, um, steady state for a number of seconds. And then uh, the balut, just like the parachute, had its own triple bridle. So that would detach. And then one leg of the triple bridle was hooked up to the parachute. And so as it detached from the test vehicle, the aerodynamic force from the balut would then extract the parachute from the can and pull all the way back. And then once the parachute got to its full length, the balut would still have all this um, aerodynamic force and would continue pulling until it pulled the bag straight off the parachute. Oh, that's really cool. That's a little glimpse into, because we don't talk about parachutes on the show very much because they're <laughs> mysterious and nobody knows how they work. They're really, um, they're really challenging, uh, yeah. especially supersonic ones. It's, it's funny. Yeah, they're really no not, not easy. And like, I, I think I said this before, but Earth is much easier because Earth, you can get subsonic without a parachute mm -hmm. and then once you get subsonic you pop out the parachutes and the inflation dynamics are relatively speaking much more straightforward and you float softly down to the ground plus you can do uh things like clustering um you can do three parachutes which is what happened during apollo um you had three parachutes and if one of those failed you were okay you had plenty of backup that doesn't work as well supersonically um much more challenging um if mm -hmm. even possible never been tested and uh you have this big I hate to, not to sound scary, but uh, it's a giant single point failure. Unfortunately, one of many um, during the EDL. Um, that being said, it's been tested um, to make those uh, failure modes very obvious and accepted. It's just something of uh, what the architecture is capable of right now. Um, and one of the reasons why all this testing is happening and continues to happen to develop is so we can hopefully move away from single point failures or uh, we can get so much comfort in our um, technical ability and understanding of these that we know exactly what they're going to do. And I believe that's where we are right now with discat bands, which is what we continue to fly on Mars. And we're hoping to get to that same level of comfort with a larger, uh, more complex parachute. For the future. So along those lines, um, I'm really curious to know your thoughts, and I'll just let you speculate wildly about uh, bringing <laughs> back the second stage of Falcon 9, because I know that Ooh. that's a very bold statement, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on how you think that's going to play out. Honestly, I'm, I'm really curious to see what they're doing. Uh, but the second stage, I mean, you can consider the second stage is, is practically orbital. It is orbital, right? It has orbital energy when it leaves any, whatever's payload in space. It's already orbital energy. And so you, you are now taking an orbital body and bring it back to the ground. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of confused why it's vastly different than, besides being much larger, but vastly different than any of their capsules, their dragon capsules, right? Oh, I can, I can answer that question. It's weight distribution, I believe, is, is the really big issue because um, oh. you, you want to fly this thing engine forward, right? I mean, that's, that's its stable orientation. But if you fly engine forward, you're not bringing home a usable engine. And so I, I think that the reason they're talking about using balutes is to change the center of pressure to, you know, behind the second stage or behind the engine so that you can now fly this thing nose first. Um, because the top of the, uh, the top of the tank, you can put as many, you know, heat tiles or, you know, heat, heat shielding that you want and you can fly it nose first through the atmosphere just like a, um, uh, just like a returning capsule, like a returning dragon or Apollo or Soyuz or whatever. D does that sound reasonable given given the way that balutes work? That you could 
that you could actually fly it that way? I'm thinking about it in my head. I'm like drawing a force <laughs> diagram in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, and and let's be clear, we're in wild speculation territory yeah, totally. here. So. Well, the, I think you guys have mentioned this in the past, which would be interesting, is there is a, a notion of a attached balut as well. Um, so we used what's called a trailing balut, um, but there is a notion of an attached balut, and there's actually technology that um, LDSD investigated for quite a long time as well, in parallel to the other two. Um, and you could do a more or less attached design that creates a similar shape uh, just beyond the current diameter of the second stage. And that could be deployed to be large enough, potentially. Yeah. Uh, so like a lawn dart the, configuration. Kind of, yeah. To keep the dynamic stability, well, to keep it dynamically stable yeah. uh, during entry. So that might be another thing they're looking at, too. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. So I guess that would... Like if, if second stage is sitting upright on the pad, like I'm guessing if you were to deploy an attached balloon, it'd probably look something like a cone coming off the the bottom half, quote unquote, down by the engine. Is that is that kind of a reasonable way? What's in your head there? I was actually thinking of a cone that deploys, the leading edge would be close to the, I guess, the top of it. Oh, okay. Is what I'm imagining. But again, we are in yeah. wild speculation zone yeah. right now. Um, the biggest thing with that, though, is, is you have to now have... Um, a fabric, I mean, you, you still had the same aerothermal issues that you have with the heat shield. Now, now you have a fabric um, that is moldable. I mean, it, it's going to be yeah. a, some sort of fabric that now has to take the same type of heat load that yeah. your heat shield is taking. Um, and that's where the challenge, it's not the aerodynamics. The aerodynamics, I am sure there are solutions which you can keep the vehicle stable during entry. That is a solvable thing. It's the aerothermodynamics that I think would be more challenging is, is to have something that can withstand the heat load, mm. uh, both the instantaneous heat load and the overall uh, amount of heat that must be absorbed during entry to get the vehicle down safely without rupturing. That energy has to be dissipated somehow. And yeah, I mean, it's either going to be in the vehicle itself, like, you know, in the tiles or through the Bellute, right? Because you can keep it at higher altitudes, but it's just going to have to soak up and then radiate that heat. Because I assume that if it couldn't do that, it would probably catch on fire, melt or whatever. <laughs> because it's, I mean, we're talking about a lot of energy. Well, I mean, most, most, um, entry materials will either soak up the heat like the shuttle tiles or they will ablate and the heat will literally i hate to say fall off but they'll it'll be <laughs> shedded away by the yeah. ablative heat shield right um with a fabric I, I guess you could um spacex has been doing some really great as you guys have talked about thermal material uh investigations and work given their all their new uh thermal systems on the block five various uh, variants of the falcon 9 uh, it would not surprise me to see something like that be workable for a fabric. And I think actually their initial heat shield for the Falcon 9 first stage around the engines was a flexible heat shield. I think it's been upgraded for Block 5 now, but I believe they had some sort of flexible heat shield material down there um, because the engines had a gimbal, right? The engines have some mm -hmm. level of motion, they need a gimbal. Uh, and there's a heat shield material I think they used um, in the Block 4 and previous that moved with the engines. And I think it's been changed for the Block 5, but now I'm wildly in speculation zone. Take everything I say with the biggest grain of salt you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so so that area is called the dance floor, right, David? Is that what we found out it was called? The Octaweb base, right? Yeah. That's what you mean? Because I think yeah. that's what they call the dance floor. And they, yeah, you're right. The um, They used to have, um, it, it looked, it was like black and it looked maybe uh, 
like quilted almost. It kind of looked like leather with stitching, but it obviously wasn't leather. And then, yeah, I don't know if they if they're changing that for Block Five. I mean, that kind of rings a bell, but yeah, wild speculation. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. I thought I read something like that, but again, we are in wild speculation. Off in the there. weeds, yeah. And going back to the original conversation, especially going for the for the second stage, um, you just have uh, vastly more energy in the second stage than you have in the first stage, and you're in a, in a pretty much an oral condition before you uh, enter. So you have to consider the, the thermal environment drastically when bringing that back. Yeah, it's, that's going to be super interesting. So I'm going to try to segue here. So if uh, <laughs> if the second stage, the Falcon 9 second stage was to have an attached balut, why would that be a balut, but Syad is not a balut? I'll give you the easy answer. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. This... We need the easy answer. We're done. <laughs> So the SIAD that we tested, which we called uh, SIAD-R for robotic missions, um, mm. was a enclosed volume. So it did not use any type of pressure from the atmosphere uh, or ram air pressure to keep inflated. It was actually inflated and sealed uh, using a number of gas generators that, was on, that were on the test vehicle. Uh, so that makes it a part of Balut is a parachute is part of the name Balut. And the SIAD that we flew didn't have any of its parachute characteristics where it actually uses the oncoming force of the air to create that drag. The other technology they were looking at, which I'm not exactly sure if we would call that an attached balloon, it was kind of fuzzy and who makes that determination, <laughs> um, but it did have a, a, a way of using the ram air pressure to keep it inflated. And that's kind hmm. of what the balloon uses as well. So the balloon has these ram air inlets on the outside of it to keep the inflation, but then has a more or less rigid shape that looks more like a balloon. And so where a parachute's completely ram air inflated, a uh, balloon is completely enclosed. A balloon has some shape though uses the ram air to keep its shape um, that's the kind of the big distinction between a balut and a sealed syad or, or the syad that we flew yeah you'd think that'd be obvious but that that just never occurred to me okay cool yeah so so syad it inflated but it didn't look like it was adding that much to the diameter of of the vehicle what's the what's what are the dynamics there how does it work the syad is kind of the unsung hero of the whole entire ldsd program because it mm -hmm. worked Perfectly. It worked exactly as expected. It did not fail spectacularly, which a lot of people watch these videos of the parachute is like, oh my god, this is, this, this is terrible or awesome or something in between. Um, the SIAD worked perfectly. Um, but as you probably know, um, so the test vehicle and also uh, our Mars entry shells have a diameter of 4.7 meters. Um, the SIAD then increases that diameter to 6 meters. And as you know, probably, um, your drag scales with the area of the drag device. So having an area of 4.7 to an area of 6 meters actually increases your drag by quite a bit. It scales with uh, the coefficient of drag times your area. So um, even though it doesn't look like it adds that much, it does add quite a bit of area that gives you just a little more time uh, during the supersonic regime. And the nice thing is the side, you can also deploy at much higher Mach numbers. We can deploy that. We deployed it at Mach 4, which is still significant, uh, significant speeds. Everybody that I've heard talk about LDSD so far has said the exact same thing which you did, which is like, check this out. Syed, you know, behaved perfectly and there were no issues. But I also kind of feel like it, it seems a little bit like it's like praising a solid state hard drive for not crashing when you drop it on the ground. Like it, it seems like it's such a solid, no fuss, you know, no muss, no fuss kind of device. What were the failure modes that were were anticipated here? Like what, what could have gone wrong? Well, one of the biggest things that you look at for a device like that is you have this assumption of the side that's going to act as a rigid body at these high speeds. And that was the biggest question is like, will the side mm -hmm. stay rigid enough that you can predictably use the drag that it creates 
safely. Um, so if it didn't stay rigid or if it started fluctuating as the test vehicle moved back and forth, that would be a problem and that mm. would give it unpredictable aerodynamic behaviors. Um, but if it stayed rigid, you're in a really good condition. Uh, and the second thing is also, um, even though in supersonic flow, you aren't nearly in the aerothermal environment that you are hypersonically, you still are generating quite a bit of heat. And so you still have a fabric and you're still looking at the heat signature that is created during that fabric. Oh, sorry, during that point of uh, flight. So even though it's not as drastic and not as dangerous as, say, something in hypersonic regime, it is still, uh, it's still something to be investigated. And though we say it's a non-issue now, like after the tests have occurred, <laughs> um, when we flew it the first time was the first time we've flown the technology at Mach 4. And Mach 4 is nothing, uh, it's, it's nothing to scoff at. It's, it's, yeah, a good yeah. amount of, it's a good amount of energy. We're moving up there. No, nothing is, is, a, is a slam dunk at Mach 4 to be honest. All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, guys. As you know, as a, a listener of the show, you have a little bit of a head start here, but we have two final questions that we like to ask. So our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, I think the best place to find me is just on LinkedIn. Uh, if you search for Eric Blood, you'll, I think, find me pretty quickly. And uh, our ultimate question, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? This is always a hard question, guys. You know, I, I, uh, I was thinking about this this morning. And one thing that I'd love to bring, which makes absolute no sense, is uh, is like a coffee cup, even though you can't have coffee in space. Well, you can have coffee. Well, you're just not in a nice ceramic. There's something that feels so human about, um, imagine like being in the cupola with a giant cup of coffee and just watching sunrise and sunset over and over and over again. That sounds so amazing. But since coffee cups don't really work as designed in space, I'm going to, I'm actually going to switch my answer to, um, I'm going to say actually my trumpet. And yeah. that's probably a little bit strange, um, but it's just, uh, I know that Chris Hadfield brought his guitar up and a number of other astronauts have brought things up, but I feel like, one, having a brass instrument in space would be really interesting, and two, it would be a really great way to annoy the Russians. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it'd just be a nice, um, it's something that I've always used in my life to kind of uh, ground me and kind of keep me calm and can get my mind out of whatever situation I'm dealing with, and to have that outlet in a cool environment like space would be pretty amazing i think the more annoying thing about a trumpet in space would be the spit valve because it, like if you're in a little close <laughs> environment uh yeah oh, it, no it, yeah it's the grossest thing because i was in band in middle school yeah <laughs> and spit valves made me gag fair enough we'll bring a we'll bring a nasa design spit retrieval device for all the brass instruments in space yeah it's called a paper towel <laughs> great well thank you so much again for your time thank you guys for having me i really appreciate it Let's move on to some upcoming spaceflight events. So not a very busy week. Right, just two. Um, so first is a Falcon 9 flying SES-12. Uh, of course, uh, it's part of a big old fleet, uh, communications fleet for like, uh, I think, TV signals. Um, this is flying out of Cape Canaveral, and it is actually flying um, a previously flown first stage, a flight-proven first stage. So this is uh, happening. It's got a pretty wide launch window. So this is happening on May 31st from 0429 hours to 0527 hours GMT, which uh, on the East Coast is 1229 hours through 1.27 a.m. 
pretty early. Yeah, probably won't be up then. And next up is on June 6th, and that's the launch of a Soyuz with MS-07, and that is a uh, run to the International Space Station with members of the next expedition crew. The capsule will remain at the station for about six months, so that's going to be there for a while. And this is launching from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, and the launch time for that is 11.11 Greenwich Mean Time, or 7.11 a.m. Eastern mm-hmm. Daylight Time. So that's a, yeah, that's a more reasonable time to watch if you're interested in watching that one. And you're on the west coast or on on the east coast east coast <laughs> yeah. on the west coast it's really early all righty uh those are your upcoming spaceflight events all right let's go ahead and deorbit and cue the music most of which is brought to you by ronald jenkins check them out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by tim dodd the everyday astronaut if you liked this episode please review us on itunes and stitcher and if you enjoyed our show please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash podcast thanks to our five dollar and up patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live you can connect with us on twitter and reddit at orbital podcast you can send questions and comments to info at the orbitalmechanics.com for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that's all, so we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye-bye, everybody.